Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and we are back um, with uh, a regular guest to the show, um, a good friend of the show, we'd like to say. And um, we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about the aftermath of Hurricane Ian and some of the information and data that is already streaming in to our federal partners and, and research centers out there that uh, look at structural damage and structural resilience and things like that. So we'll get into that here in a little bit. But before we can get to Dan, we have to get to Sam. So, hey, Sam. Well, I'm here in Colorado, and there's a, there's a, nothing in the weather that we're too worried about. So that's a good thing. But I have to tell you guys, um, I have a friend I've known for about four years. He was living in Naples. And as you know, that's was right where the hurricane went. And uh, in fact, he said they were hit with the west side of the eye wall and it sat there for like 10 hours. So it pretty much took out that whole area, including most of what he had. So he packed up his car and he's coming to Colorado. The interesting thing, I was just talking to him a bit ago. He's saying, you know, People are acknowledging me. They see that Florida license plate, and they're waving, and they're, you know, he said, I'm kind of feeling the love, and he said that, you know, truck drivers are, are protecting me, and he said, you know, they know where I'm coming from, and they don't know where I'm going, but they know I'm going somewhere. So I thought that was kind of cool, because I imagine there are a lot of people leaving Florida right now, because uh, they still don't have electricity and a lot of stuff in a lot of places. But we have Dan Zayner with us. Our, hey, guys. Uh, knowledgeable about all things broken and can be broken. And we've learned a few interesting things in the last few days about how things can be structured to maybe not fall down and be damaged and be ruined. But, Dan, you were just telling us a little bit about how they survey the post-damage areas. Yeah, so thanks for having me on again, guys. It always seems like uh, we get, we get together on someone else's worst day. <laughs> <'Cause>, uh, <laughs> That's a disaster world, unfortunately. You know, so uh, good good to be with you, but uh, obviously under unfortunate circumstances, and um, really thinking about our friends down in Florida for sure. Um, so what you alluded to is the amazing chest of toys and tools that our friends up at the University of Washington, the Nary Rapid team have at their disposal. And we were just drooling over some of the data imagery that they have taken with um, one of their assets. It's a Google Street View camera. So uh, you can stick it on top of a rental car and it will take uh, images as you drive through um, a, an affected area and you and, and it will stitch together a 360 degree view with GPS data tagged to it and create a map of where you went so that you can see um, later after everything is cleaned up, what happened. Uh, it, this is one of the really important things that the, the rapid team does is they get out as quickly as it is practical and safe to do so and capture the perishable data about what happens to the community and the structures in it before the cleanup really starts in earnest. I mean, obviously they're gonna have to clean up enough to get road access to places, um, but you still have things like boats in the road in a lot of these pictures. Yeah, and these, these are amazing, Dan. And structural damage and, and things like that. 
And yeah, you were saying, uh, Dan, that they can really, even really measure, they can even measure like the angle of the roof tilt and things like that to kind of gauge the type of damage yes. and what caused it and things like that. Yes. So a lot of things that they do, they have um, a number of different flavors of um, LIDAR scanners. So uh, it's basically using lasers to very accurately um, uh, measure points in space. So you send out a, a whole bunch of lasers and it scans an area. Um, they have some scanners that are good for buildings, some for hallways, some for kind of a community scale, some for scanning like a hillside for like a landslide, but they all work the same way, sending out laser beams and measuring the reflection uh, time and intensity so that I can see the distance away from the scanner very accurately that the point is, which allows you to pair that with visual data to be able to take extremely accurate measurements of what's going on in that environment. So you'd be able to, like Jamie said, measure the angle at which a building is leaning, or if there's a big crack in a building, you could measure how uh, how wide it is and how long it is, things like that. Well, in that information, I mean, I'm thinking back to the 80s when I did disaster services for American Red Cross, and after an earthquake, we just have to drive around and look at buildings and see if they were off their foundation or whatever, because the feds needed to start to get an idea of how bad it was and, and what they had to do and how much it was going to cost and all of that. But now you've yes. got all of these other tools that you can do that a lot more quickly and accurately, right? Yes, exactly. And it, and it allows um, folks that are in our research network, um, like STEER, the, stru the uh, Structural Extreme Events Reconnaissance Team, to partner with those who have tools like this um, in, in the region um, to begin to even virtually assess these um, hazard areas. So if someone listening to this tomorrow wanted to say, hey, I would really like to be involved the next time a hurricane hits and help with the data collection, you can sign up for steer you don't have to be a scientist i'm part of steer and i have a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering like nothing to do with you know disaster science or response or anything i'm just you know interested in, in helping so you don't have to be a disaster scientist professional phd or anything you just have to follow some standards and, and processes and there's plenty of training for it so steer is a really great organization to be part of if you want to contribute to um, to the science and to the response of, of events like this. Well, that's good to know because God knows there's enough area that's damaged that they probably need a lot of people out there. Yeah. And and some of these, you know, the virtual assessments, like scrolling through Twitter and looking for people's photos and putting them in uh, if they're geotagged and could be identified where they were taken, that's really helpful data. Um, that is time-consuming to find. So I think even things like that are very helpful data collection methods that anyone can do. Yeah, the, the world of social media, you know, there's, I like the way you can actually do like 360 degrees. Um, is, oh, this some, is this something our, our listeners can, can access through STEER? Yeah, yeah, you should be able to um, send the links that I've sent you guys and put them in the show notes um, and, cool. and they're publicly available. Um, you can also join the Design Safe Slack community, and we have a Hurricane Ian 2022 channel that is free and open to anybody with an account. Um, and there is 
more data than you can shake a stick at just in that Slack channel from people who really know what they're doing, like our our friends uh, <laughs> Tracy Kajuski Correa, who is the head of Steer and is a PhD at Notre Dame and amazing. Um, Forrest Masters, who is from uh, University of Florida, he's a dean of engineering there and sends out uh, towers with all sorts of instruments on them to every hurricane. Both of them are in there. Um, you've got cool. wind engineers, you've got structural engineers, you've got all the people who really know their stuff, and you can ask them questions, and they'd love to answer them. That's neat. What do you think, Jamie? Well, I just love the idea of crowdsourcing some of this stuff to get the information from the ground immediately or as quickly as possible, practically after an event like this, and and utilizing that information after the fact to measure damage, to measure structural integrity, to measure all of those things in a way that will hopefully um, benefit future um, people during future events, future storms, future earthquakes, whatever the case may be. Um, and, and, you know, in this case, I know that um, there were some buildings that fared much better following the, um, the following Hurricane Charlie's landing, what, 10 years ago, that um, a lot of the structural um, standards were raised. And so some there were buildings built after that that seemed to withstand Ian much better not completely unscathed, but much better than some of the pr- earlier built structures. Yeah, exactly. It, it definitely proves what, what we're trying to do at Nary is, is drive those code changes um, as, as fast as practical, right? Because every time there's a storm, we learn something new and the storms are getting more frequent and more uh, intense. And so those, those changes to code and changes to, to the actual built um, environment, the actual um, building stock is the result we want to see. Well, this other link you sent us is interesting too, the, the STEER uh, network, because it shows the different levels of activation that they do. First mm-hmm. being virtual data gathering, followed by rapid field assessment, followed by detailed field assessment. So, it, you know, it's interesting to know who's doing what out there, you know, after yeah. the hurricane and trying to figure out what you can learn. So mm-hmm. on that note, um, you, you you sent me a bunch of data that I certainly didn't understand. <laughs> uh, so if you want to uh, interpret some of that for our listeners, um, what yeah, kind of so amazing some, some things... Of it is- some of it, so all these are in the Slack channel. If you want to nerd out with uh, myself and, and others who get kicked out of this kind of thing, but um, <laughs> you can see uh, some of the really interesting data is we know the most damaging parts of a hurricane are our storm surge. And there are actual sensors that measure that kind of thing, and you can get the data from them to see how high the water was at any particular. Um, time during the storm, like one of these, uh, you could see that it was, you know, like 1.4 meters over mean water height or something. So it's like four feet above normal, which is quite a bit. Um, and there's, there's, so there's a few different data sets like that for storm surge. There's also some for the wind field. Like if you're really interested in, in what parts of the storm were more intense than others wind wise and how did that change over time? Um, there's data sets for that. Um, Forest Masters and his team, they have three different uh, sensor packages deployed that basically measure kind of, we call it the boundary layer. So like that first um, 
tens of feet above the ground, uh, kind of turbulent churning of the air uh, along the ground, they measure what's in there, I think up to 30 feet, and they've got a few different sensors. So you can see temperature, pressure, wind speed over time with, with those sensors. And they do a really good job of predicting where the eye of the storm is going to deploy and sticking their stuff right where it's going to be. Uh, and, and most of the time, they, they hit it right on the nose. Well, my friend was telling me, as I mentioned, that, that they were right on the, the west side of the eye wall. And I, as I understand it, that's one of the worst places to be because that's when the yeah. winds are really out of control. And for that to sit there for 10 hours, you can imagine the damage it was doing. Um, and, of course, yeah. my friend is one of these people that, oh, well, I've been through Hurricane Donna and Charlie and all the rest of these, and I'm going, don't underestimate this. <laughs> well, unfortunately, they found out the hard way. But how, how, mm -hmm. how much wind is being generated in that situation and that if you're just inside the eye wall? Yeah, I, I think I was seeing at one point it was it was a, over 155 miles an hour, if I remember right. Um, we're looking at one. Uh, so this was kind of in the in the middle of things. They had uh, 89 miles per hour sustained for a minute, 114 miles per hour, a three second gusts, and they had that for um, quite a while. And this was right at ground level, so. That is really forceful winds. Yeah, especially when there's no relief. I mean, yeah. it doesn't sound like very long, but then you've also got other things going on, you know, especially when it sits on top of you like that. So, Jamie, yeah. what do you know about where it went after that? Because I know it went up the coast. Well, it, it came inland and around the Fort Myers area, Fort Myers Beach area, um, and headed inland um, at a roughly northeasterly track across Florida. So it went through, went by Orlando, Daytona Beach, and then back out a day and a half later. It took a day and a half to get across Florida, which isn't that far, um, which is why there was so much flooding inland and, and so much wind damage everywhere. Um, then it went out back out into the Atlantic where it gathered strength again um, back up to a Category 1 hurricane before landing again in just uh, just south of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and then went inland towards um, the Carol North Carolina Mountain and Virginia Mountains, where it came back up and then kind of just petered out somewhere in New England. Yeah, that's the worst-case scenario when it goes out, gains, you know, does its damage, goes out, gains some speed, comes back in as a hurricane and goes somewhere else. I mean, it's double whammy for sure. Um, so, Dan, was there anything you guys discovered that was just amazingly different about this storm or something you learned that you maybe hadn't seen yet? Yeah, unfortunately, they're actually seeing uh, patterns, uh, not, not so much new things, although there are some new things, but um, my, my friend Forrest Masters, actually in an article that we'll link as well, he's he's gone to diff 40 different storms over the course of 20 years and sees this pattern of buildings suffering damage at slower wind speeds than they're actually supposed to withstand. Just this, this long time problem of, of buildings actually not performing to their design standards, which is a big problem. Um, and so that's, that's part of what their uh, research is, is there to do in we've 
got this big stress test of the the building uh, envelope there and going out to see what what can we find. So once once the uh, steer teams begin to activate and people get out in the field, um, they're going to put out a very comprehensive report on what they've learned. So keep an eye out on the, the steer network over the next couple of weeks or months here. And there will be some really comprehensive lessons learned um, from this storm like they have with with other ones. Yeah, that should be really interesting. Do you think that, uh, I mean, and you may not know the answer to this, Dan, but um, do you think that there's a, a challenge with scaling up from, say, you know, um, model wind tunnel tests of structural dynamics, scaling that up to a full-sized building? Or do you think this is maybe... For sure there are. Yeah. For sure there are problems. That's, that's why we look for as much data as possible in the field because there there's absolutely a whole myriad of things that don't that you can't replicate in the lab um easily <laughs> um so we have when you're in a lab you have controlled conditions um you can't do things like flying debris in most labs there are labs like texas tech has one that focuses only on flying debris and they could they have an air cannon that chucks two by fours it's amazing um but that's at a small scale. Like you could do that at a wall or a window or a, a garage door, but they don't have the scale that, say, Florida International University's Wall of Wind does, where you can put a 10-foot-tall, uh, 8-foot-wide structure on a turntable and subject it to 160-mile-an-hour winds with rain. So there's limitations to every lab that we have in, in the wind engineering field, and no one lab yet combines all the factors you see in a hurricane like uh straight line winds combined with tornadic turbulent winds rain debris um temperature change and storm surge there's no lab in the world that combines all of those things perfectly yet you know i was just uh thinking about the it, it was ironic because the I was sent a link, but it was right after I was listening to public radio and they were talking about, you know, because you and I, Dan, last time we talked, which wasn't long ago, um, we talked about the different types of buildings and what's resilient to what and mm -hmm. so forth and so on. But what we learned is this whole community, there's a community and actually it's just right outside Fort Ryers by about, you know, 20 miles called Babcock Ranch. It was built in 2018, and it was built to be storm-resistant, and they never have had a chance to test it to this level. But they have a—I'm just skimming here—they have um, 700,000 solar panels, um, so it's completely—yeah, um, that got— you know, minimal damage. They never lost power. They have a, an underground aquifer, uh, so their drinking water never got contaminated. They have their own wastewater plant. Um, they use, um, you know, where is it up here? Yeah, I mean, it's not only they just need to boil water, which is right. Great. None of that. It, you know, it was just it. I think all their electrical is under under the ground so mm -hmm. they don't have to Which worry about that key. going down they they also use native flora and it's certainly well beyond built to code construction um and it's just amazing and what i was 
hearing on NPR was they were bringing in refugees from mm -hmm. Fort Myers that, you know, lost everything. So I was really gobsmacked when I heard that. These people got it going on, and it, it would seem to me, and you were talking like 4,600 people here. This is a big community. But they planned it. Um, yeah. But in a place that's kind of a little bit above and beyond this the surge. So that's a good thing too. But yep. you know, it's just amazing to me that there aren't more of these. Um, yeah. It just goes to show we've, we've talked quite, quite a bit about um, yes. Making your community more resilient to hazards. Can't, it does cost more upfront. No question. But look at the result. This, this yeah. probably costs a, a fraction of the amount above what a normal planned community would to to create and they're they're suffering you know a couple thousand in damage rather than millions right. yeah i mean they you know ripped up pool coverings broken yeah, no big deal missing shingles but they never lost power they never lost water and like I said, they were even able to start taking in other and people. One of the biggest things, especially in Florida, that you know you see all the the, the numbers of, of deaths going up is old folks in their home losing power and not being able to rely on life support machines like oxygen right, generators. Right, right, yeah. Like yeah. it's a it's a it's a reality, but it's it, it's a sad reality. A lot of folks go to Florida to retire, <laughs> and oh, Sarasota need, especially. My, my yeah, and they need there. medical support. They they need a community of support. There's lots of need that require things like power and clean water, and if you don't have access yeah. to either of those, you die. Right. You and know, Dan, we we focus a lot on the homes and the home building codes, but um, there's. We, we should also be focusing on the other infrastructure design mm -hmm. and, and building codes because, obviously, how do our electrical transmission lines hold up oh, and yeah. things like that? Um, how, do, yep. how does our water treatment plant hold up? Um, all those things. Yeah, and, that, and that's a lot of... A lot of uh, a lot of research has been done at, at Florida International University's uh, Wall of Wind because they can do things at near full scale. Um, they've done research uh, in the wind tunnel on electrical transmission lines, communication systems, things like traffic signals uh, they've put in the wind tunnel or construction equipment. Um, looking at um, you know high rise buildings like Miami, Florida has, and what is what happens when you have a construction crane in the middle of a hurricane? What happens then? Uh. So. Yeah, it's a big area of research into infrastructure lifelines as well as construction. And how does that go during uh, events like uh, like Ian? Well, I would hope that, you know, this has kind of become a big story. And I, I'm hoping when they start rebuilding some of these areas in Florida that they might, you know, take a take this story and run with it, you know? There's a lot of things they can do, like with the power, that's always the biggest problem, just putting the lines underground. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe it's a little more expensive to do that, but if it saves lives down the road, because yeah. there will be another hurricane. Absolutely, and and looking at this, I mean, 
props to the 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 developer who had this this vision and they've done it at a, at a fairly reasonable cost to the to the consumer they've got at the end of this article it says houses started around two hundred fifty thousand dollars i don't know about you but for a lot of uh, people that's fairly affordable yeah in for a house and and actually a pretty darn good deal for a, a retirement community in florida that's resilient to a hazard that is a a amazing value so yeah yeah just the peace of mind you would have you know when the hurricane comes because there will be another one you never know next week next month next year just having that knowledge that you're going to be okay is what's that worth you know yeah peace of mind right exactly and 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 sure they they'll be the first to say, and they do say at the end of this article here, like, you know, we don't want to brag about this. We don't want to uh, rest on our laurels and, and assume, great, everything's going to be fine. We never need to change anything again um, because, you know, this was a Category 4 storm that could get hit by a Category 5 and five and things not go so well. Um, but it's a great proof of concept and a really, really good example for what uh, you're implementing the, the best that you can in terms of the knowledge at uh, the time that you have it can can really do for your community. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I just hope they are able to build more there. I don't know, Jamie, do they have anything like this in Maryland that you've heard of? No, but our, you know, I, I mean, we, our risk for hurricanes and things, we're, we're more likely to get a tornado or something like that. Um, our hurricane risk is, is much less than what's compared to Florida. And when we do get those kind of storms here, we're much more likely to sustain inland flooding damage than wind and storm surge damage that you see. Um, so, that, you know, that's a whole nother can of worms, um, you know, when you're dealing with creeks rising and flash flooding events and things like that due to just torrential rain downpours. Yeah, I wonder how this community would do in a tornado, Dan. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of uh, things that we don't think about in a hurricane is that they do produce tornadoes um, yeah. within them. So this this uh, you know, community did withstand some tornadoes, most likely. Wow. This is just, I just have this vision of this perfect little community and everything around it being devastated. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm impressed. Yeah, like it's, it's exciting. And, and the thing is, I mean, the, the, the hurricane season's not over. There's a no, tropical depression 13 yeah. down, down um, just off the Columbia coastline, or uh, it's Venezuela, actually. Um, they're on the um, north northern tip of South America, and it's going to you know, it's, it may likely swerve up into the Gulf or at least the Caribbean and impact some other places. I'm not saying it's coming to Florida, but, you know, this is this is about the area where um, Ian first developed. So we have to be wary. Um, the season isn't over until the end of November, and there's a lot of time left. Yeah, and like last year, it seems like a lot of the hurricanes are coming late in the season, which it certainly is happening, happening now. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had a thought, and I forgot what it is. Oh, I was going to mention another thing I heard on NPR was I, that I didn't know was that about a third of Pakistan is underwater. Um, they Whoa. got such a strong monsoon 
that just sat there and dumped water. But the, the, the weird thing is the water isn't going away. It's just sitting there. And I'm not sure why that happens. But, I mean, these poor people, they, they have their main source of income are wheat and, and cotton. And they're, they're, you know, it's so hot there that they're going out in the early morning and in the evening to try and pull up what cotton they can get out of the water and see how much of it survived. And they're not able to plant their wheat, which is their, that they would be doing right now. So that, you know, talk about devastation. Uh, that yeah. I hadn't heard that either. So, wow. but why yeah. would the water not go down? I mean, it, we're talking farmlands and stuff. I don't understand. I, I don't that. know. I, I know that there's there, that flooding really caused a lot of devastation, and and you know when you consider what the United States would be like if we had a third of the country under major flood alerts. Um, I, I can't even imagine. Right. I mean, it would just be devastating. Mm-hmm. Even if you picked the state and said a third of the state was or, under yeah. uh, exactly. under that type of um, problem. So, yeah, I, I did see some reports on yeah. that. Do we know how much? Yeah, it looks Florida... like they 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 had uh, it looks like they had for, between June and uh, through August, Pakistan had a hundred and ninety percent of its normal rainfall. Oh my God, that's and these people aren't rich anyway, you know. No. So I'm sure their homes aren't built to withstand something like this, and not to but when they you know when they lose all their food and their you know their exports, what they used to live on. That's just, it, it's terribly sad. Um, do we know how much of Florida was actually affected by this storm? That is a good question. You know, I, at one point, I mean, the storm was so large from end edge to edge where they were, you know, where the, the cloud cover from the storm and the circulation from the storm and the outer bands, um, it it reached from one end of Florida to another. Um, so at one point or another, all parts of Florida were ha- were impacted by some wind, rain, or other at- side effects from Ian, which is why the inland flooding was such a problem. Um for, for such a long time because it was moving slowly and just kept sweeping in more moisture and more rain out off the coastline. So um, it, it was, you know, it was, again, this is, this is a, this is an example of some of the things that we've talked about with the DePodwins and with Kyle Nelson and others uh, about of our meteorologist group that the, you can't compare storms, um, you know, yeah. a, a, a giant category one storm, is more impactful in many ways than a small, fast-moving Category 4 storm. Um, in this case, we had a very large Category 4 storm. Um, and so you, you you can't compare one storm to another even by category. Um, that That's why that categorization system is, is kind of broken from that respect for the, for the layman. Um, we have to take each storm at its face value because all the data points are different for every storm. Where did it hit? What is the community like? What's the shoreline like? What you know? How fast was it moving? What kind of rainfall did it produce? Um, what were the wind speeds? How far out did the wind speeds reach? And Dan, you you could probably talk about this all day long. I mean, it's just there's so yep. many data points. That's why steer is so important. Yeah. Yeah. It, ab- absolutely. So. Um, we put a, I put a link in from one of one of last year's storms just to give give folks an idea. 
looking into the the amount of data that goes into uh, something like a, a a steer response. I mean, they look at all of that, right? They look at this, you know, huge huge amount of data, and it's freely available. Go go take a look at it. Um, this is one from uh, Hurricane Ida, and they they look into all that. So you know, look at the the measures of all the wind speeds and. Uh, they look at um, the the surge and where it was and how high it was, and the extent of the wind field, and yeah, all all those factors that that you mentioned, Jamie. Well, it'll be really interesting when the final data comes in and find out how much damage was done in the storm. I think it's going to be pretty astronomical, and I wonder how many people are end up leaving Florida. A, because they don't want to deal with this again, and B, because there's, you know, nothing left for a lot of them. Well, we're about out of time, and I know we could talk about this for a lot longer, but Dan, any words of wisdom? Any uh, final points? I, I think kind of what we always say in hurricane season is is heed, heed the warnings no matter how many hurricanes you've ever been through. Um, if, if they tell you to evacuate, do it. Um, if... Uh, if you've got parents or grandparents living in the path of a hurricane and they say, oh, we were here in Charlie and it's going to be fine, go down and get them. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Just because you've been through a hurricane before and you got lucky doesn't guarantee success in, in any particular hurricane or, or evacuation warning. So, so really take those seriously um, and check your ego and your pride at the door. Yeah, yeah well, my, my friend found that out. I mean, it's, it's not like around. saying, well, I've had a root canal, so I know what a root canal is like. It, it's, <laughs> right. you know, uh, every hurricane is different and you can't compare them to each other. Yeah, exactly. And 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 the the best thing that could possibly happen is you are displaced for a, a few days and you come back and your house is fine. Uh, or you know, actually, that would be the worst thing that could happen if you evacuate. Right. Yes, it's inconvenient. Yes, it's hard. Don't get me wrong. If you've got pets, if you've got medical issues, if you've got mementos that you want to take with you, there's there's complications and difficulty for sure. But it's much better than the alternative uh, of becoming a statistic and becoming, uh, you know, add, adding to the burden of someone having to take care of you, take care of your family if you're gone. And think about, you know, generators and things like that ahead of time. You know, not when it's too late. Right, Jamie? Absolutely. And, and you know, I think this is a great example of, you know, we've got all those USAR people down there um, still working hard. Um, the, the other members of the FEMA response team that are doing such a, a just a, a Herculean effort down there to, to get resources to the people that are displaced, um, to try to help with the recovery and the reset that's going to take months if not years to to rebuild down there um and you know that all comes from great training resources and um opportunities to to learn from past events and people who've been there and it's one of the reasons we want to thank joe and the rest of the team at paragon medical education group um they are experienced disaster responders to a variety of different types of disasters and they bring that expertise to the training they provide to the communities that that want to take advantage of that so um i would take i would get in touch with them they can provide a customized resource for you based on your budget and your resources and and 
put that training out there for your responders that it's going to be unlike anything you've ever seen before. So check them out at paragonmedicalgroup.com. You can also check them out at paragonmededu on Twitter or through our Facebook group and our website at disasterpodcast.com where there are links to connect with them as well. And um, Dan, thanks so much for reaching out and, um, and giving us this information from the steer team so quickly after the event. Uh, it's really amazing that we can pull this kind of information together so fast right after everything. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I, I want to highlight one more uh, organization before we go today um, that uh, I'm a part of, but haven't done much with other than raising some funds for and raising awareness of, um, but it's near and dear to my heart, um, Team Rubicon. They're a, a disaster response organization that um, uses teams of military veterans and, and civilians to be the best part of someone's worst day and, and help get to a, a particular person's house back to a place where a contractor can begin to work on it. So if you're um, inspired by what we've been talking about and want to do something physical, tangible to uh, help the people out, uh, in addition to what Jamie mentioned, uh, and you maybe like swinging a hammer or using a shovel to muck out houses uh, or are really good in logistics, or organizing people and, and leading teams, uh, check out teamrubiconusa.org and, uh, and sign up to, to volunteer to be a gray shirt. And, and I thanks. think we've had t- somebody from Team Rubicon on here a few years ago to talk about that organization. I, I highly recommend um, checking it out and supporting it, whether it's with your personal resources or with a few dollars you can ship their way. Um, it goes to a good it goes to good things. It goes to them really getting on the ground and taking care of people where it, where it needs to be done. Um, Dan, thanks so much. Um, Sam, where can folks find you if they want to follow up after this this uh, episode? Well, I want to say, too, Dan, thanks for all these great links. This is makes for some really good reading and interesting photos. You can find me in social media under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11, certainly in the Disaster Podcast group on Facebook and on our disaster.com website. Jamie? And you can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations and always over at disasterpodcast.com where I post the episodes and uh, there are links there to subscribe to every episode on each episode page right below the audio player. You'll see links for iOS, Android devices. Um, just A lot of them are just click once link and you get them. Um, they uh, tell you right away um, how, to, how to subscribe on your device using your favorite podcast app. It's a great way to, to make sure you don't miss any future episodes and um it's great having dan here as always i uh, i always am i'm always impressed by the amount of information that dan brings to the table sam uh yeah it's just mind-blowing <laughs> and what steer is doing and i just love hearing about it because they they do such good work but like dan said um think ahead you know prepare ahead don't think that worst case scenario isn't going to happen Keep you and yourself and your family safe. 